TED Audio Collective. Hey everyone, it's Manoush here. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor Cognizant for supporting this season of ZigZag. Later on in the episode, I speak to Ben Pring of Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work about the land of Remotopia. You've likely been living in Remotopia for the past few months, so you don't want to miss what Ben has to say. Do you want to look on my computer or your computer? Fine. Okay. All right. Uh, what's your name? What do you do? My name is Josh Robin. I'm Minusha's husband. Father of the two children who we have been with nonstop for several months now. Yeah, but I'm, well, at this moment, I'm really kind of loving that. I know, me too. That's for another episode. We're several months into the, oh, did you hear my niece? We're several months into the pandemic. And um, have you looked at our retirement accounts? I have indeed. You have? Yeah, I've definitely looked at it since the market tanked. But the market hasn't tanked. Tanked initially, and then it's since rebounded. And what does this say to you? It says to me that the markets (laughs) really don't make much sense and that the markets don't often take into account the wider economic collapse, which has seen millions of people out of work. And that the Fed is going to be backing up investments and that there's no other place to park your money, according to a lot of people. But I think it's screwy. Why do you think it's screwy? Because there are people suffering all over the United States and the world. They've lost their jobs. They don't know when their jobs are coming back. And meanwhile, you know, if you have money to invest, Mm -hmm. then you're basically doing okay. Just looking now at what the NASDAQ index has done, let's stay over the last year. <laughs> Look at that. So the pandemic, it's like going up, going up, going up, and then it's like there's a cliff and everybody jumps off of it. Wow. What day is it the lowest? March like 19th? March 23rd. March it went 23rd. down to 6,800. Now at, we're back past the high that yeah, there was previously. That's right. Which doesn't make any sense, because as you just said, all these people are out of work. All these companies are going to be going bankrupt. There's less money circulating in the economy, and yet the investors who are making it look like that, because it's not you and me, we're not selling and buying and making all that happening, because we're not touching our money. Right. But all the people who are doing that are are placing bets, essentially, instead of putting money into like things to actually change things and make things better, don't you think? <laughs> I don't have a good explanation for it. I'm, you know, we're we're passive investors, as you say. Like this is retirement, and this is the kids' college. This isn't something that we do actively. No. Do I think like that there's a possibility that it'll just tank again? Sure, but there seems to be an irrational exuberance. Someone should coin that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is ZigZag, the business podcast about being human. Over half of us here in the U.S. own stocks, and like Josh said, we're not parking our millions there or looking to make a quick buck. We're investing part of our paychecks for the long term so that we can send our kids to college, retire eventually. And so it can be kind of confusing to log in, to check on your future, 
and see that the markets are tanking or flying high or both on the same day. I mean, we're in a recession. Unemployment rates are at record levels. People are protesting in the streets about racial inequality. And oh, there's a pandemic. The stock market does not reflect reality. It is its own weird reality. There are lots of reasons why. But fundamentally, that volatility, as it's called, reflects a big systemic problem. Business gets done in the short term. Companies live and die based on how good their quarterly earnings reports look. And if they look amazing, their stock price goes up. They're worth more money. So CEOs will do anything to boost those quarterly reports. They'll hire as few people as possible at the lowest wages. They'll avoid paying taxes. All kinds of antisocial behavior. Now, this is not all companies, but for a lot of them, it's like telling a wrestler that they need to cut weight for the big fight next month. And so all they do is drink water and eat an apple every day. And sure, in the short term, they will make their weight class. Maybe they'll win the fight. But in the long term, they have screwed up their metabolism and their health. That analogy applies to a lot of our systems right now. Faster, faster, more, more doesn't mean better, healthier, kinder, more sustainable for more people. So how do we play the long game? That question is at the crux of this new season of ZigZag. Six episodes about the systems that have contributed to some of the messes we're in right now through the eyes of six amazing people who have ideas about how to fix them. Ways to reinvent business, industries, even capitalism in the name of humanity. You'll also hear their stories of personal reinvention. Me living the American dream and my father living the full-out nightmare and those coexisting in the same family, that is quintessentially American. I think he was surprised that I didn't want to continue the investment conversation because he had all the leverage in that position. I had this feeling that even as a chaplain, I had to prove my exceptionalism to people. Mm. Uh, you know, I had to be the best chaplain. Like, what is that even, right? So if you're listening to this podcast, you are likely on your own zigzagging quest to find a kinder, more sustainable way to live and work. I know I am. Because we are all facing twists and turns in our careers, our companies, and our lives as never before. Can we align our ambitions with what's good for our fellow humans? Let's find out. Before we dive in, got a quick note for you longtime listeners. You may already know that my co-host Jen Poyant and I dissolved our business partnership. We were pretty bummed and honest about what went wrong. You can go back in your podcast feed and listen to our final recorded conversation. Anyway, stick around for the end of the episode. I will give you an update on Jen and our company, Stable Genius Productions. I gotta say, it is really weird doing this show without her. I'm also recording it in a closet while my kids are sleeping upstairs. Anyway, deep breath. Here we go. Let's kick off ZigZag Season 5, Episode 1, and delve into some of the effed-up fundamentals of our economy with this guy. Uh, my name is Eric Reese. I am the founder of the Long-Term Stock Exchange and author of The Lean Startup. 
Isn't his voice so soothing? To understand Eric's wild project called The Long-Term Stock Exchange, we first need to talk about his book, The Lean Startup. When The Lean Startup was published a decade ago, it changed how the tech industry worked. Want to start a company? This was your Bible. It was a template for making faster decisions about how to build your business. It still is. Terms we all use now, like iterate and pivot. That's Lean Startup Talk. Anyway, Eric Ries pretty much became the king of the tech bros and nerds, or maybe more like the chief tutor. But unlike some of those bros, Eric is not into moving fast and breaking things, as that old Facebook mantra went. In fact, his latest project is a radical financial experiment, a social justice movement in the form of a new stock exchange. Now, there are only about 13 stock markets in the U.S., so launching a new one is kind of a big deal. And Eric's personal journey from tech wonder kid to realizing we need a new way to measure success for companies and ourselves mirrors much of what has happened to this country over the past 10 years. I had really worked in the technology industry and in Silicon Valley almost exclusively. So I had had a very self-contained, very local experience uh, doing the classic tech founder, computer programmer type career path. And then all of a sudden, because of the book, I got this world tour. It was mm. it was remarkable how wide the applicability turned out to be of those concepts and the interest all over the world in every conceivable industry, in different companies from you know three days old to hundreds of years old, from you know two founders in a garage up to hundreds of thousands of employees, you know nonprofit, for profit, government agencies, you name it. Uh, there were people who wanted to talk to me about lean startups. So my life became very broad. And all of a sudden, I got to kind of go backstage and see how the world really works. It was really fascinating. So as you were getting your world tour, as you mentioned, presumably you were also seeing, like you've just listed some of the more productive and constructive side of building a company. But I'm guessing that you became more and more aware of some of the more destructive um not so societally helpful <laughs> parts <laughs> of building companies. So that's a really interesting way of framing the question. So as I went to more and more places and worked with more and more companies, you know, if you talk to any middle manager in any organization of any size, almost anywhere in the world and ask them, how's it going? What's the health of your organization? You will immediately start to hear about these antisocial problems that their organization has that have their origin in short-term thinking and short-term behavior. I mean, any of you who've had a, if you have a colleague who works a middle manager in a public company, how often do they complain about the quarterly returns and the, the slavishness with which companies are run quarter to quarter, target to target, without the ability to make the long-term investments in, in the humanity of their employees? That problem is on everybody's lips, and it was actually a bit of a shock to me. Why was it a shock to you? You know, I, I was a former business reporter at Reuters, and, you know, you wait for the quarterly earnings. And um, it just, like, I did when I started as, like, a young business reporter, I didn't know any better. I was like, okay, this is how it's done. That's right. And then, you know, then you start to see, like, markets react to how the quarterly things went. And then you start to get older, and you're like, well— wait a minute, we're living our whole lives in like three-month cycles? That's how it works? It's almost, it's something that our grandparents would not understand. 
we have gotten used to it through this like slow process of decay. So everyone views it as normal. But if you really think about it, I mean, even for a few seconds, like think about how the pressure there is, think about how sales for everything spike at quarter boundaries. You know, December 31st is always a way better sales day than January 1st. And the unnatural acts that are conducted to make sure that this arrangement happens, are they actually in the enterprise's best interests? As soon as you start to run the company to produce the correct report, the report is no longer useful as a tool of accountability. And then you got to ask yourself, what is it for? So you were surprised by this. Why were you surprised? I guess I had a very Pollyannish or I don't know what the, what's the right word. I had a very naive view living in Silicon Valley. You know, we build great companies. We're building, we are very much the rhetoric of building companies for decades and centuries, changing the world. That's like almost to the point of cliche. So I just assumed as I went out into the wider world that I just assumed that they knew what they were talking about and knew what they were doing. And then as I met more and more of those people and I saw the look of incomprehension on their faces, we would start to talk about these issues. What can we do about this problem? Like if you ask even a senior manager, CEOs, boards, what's the top problem afflicting you? The issue of short-termism is always one of the top three things they mention. And they'll go on and on about it for hours and hours. But if you say, but what should we do about it? They look at you like you're nuts. Like, well, that's like asking, what should we do about gravity? (laughs) You don't really do anything about it. It's just a fact of the universe. That's how it is. And I, I, for something, I don't know, for whatever reason, I was surprised by that. I thought that the culture of business at large was that uh, one of a can-do attitude and we can change things and things are always improving. And so why is this one issue, one where we have such fatalism about, especially as I learn more, you see it in the root causes of so many of the problems in the world, you know, around sustainability, around inequality, around inclusion, you know, you name it. Uh, corruption, the like disintegration of social fabric in communities. Is there an example you're thinking of that sort of like, uh, I mean, you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but of of a company that maybe like illustrates this this issue that you're describing? Well, I'll start with the most boring and mundane, but actually the one that would radicalize me first. You would think with the ideology of business that we have in the 21st century that companies would continuously invest in innovation, understanding that to stand still in this day and age uh, is to see your profit margins and opportunities be eroded by an infinity of new competitors. And in fact, I get called into companies quite often because they want to make those investments. And the strange thing I learned was companies have this kind of like uh, boom bust cycle they go through where they invest in innovation, they get some projects going. And then the second they have a bad quarter, the first projects to be canceled or cannibalized are the innovation <laughs> projects. It's like eating the seed corn. It makes no sense. It's it's counterproductive. You may as well not invest in innovation if you're going to cancel it before it's had a chance to run its course. Innovation takes longer than three months. So this is like an epidemic in our corporations. And I kept meeting with the people tasked with doing innovation, and I would watch them go through this cycle over and over again, you know, get funding, have their projects canceled, get fired, get hired, go through the same cycle again. It's just, it, once you get to see all that stuff up close and personal, it, the, the human cost is what I come back to again and again. It's really painful. The human cost, like companies not being able to give workers paid leave during an economic crisis because when the economy was riding high, they used all their money to buy their own stock back instead of building up their cash reserves that they could use in an emergency. Like, right now. 
okay, so how do we break this three-month cycle of destruction? Eric's big answer after a quick break. Since March, so many of us feel like we've been living on a new planet, a place experts are calling Remotopia. Remotopia, Remotopia, depending on how you pronounce it, yeah. This is Ben Pring. I'm the head of thought leadership and the director of Cognizance Center for the Future of Work. Cognizance, a big technology consulting and services company. Even before the pandemic, Ben and his team at Cognizant were studying how people work remotely or live in Remotopia. Remotopia is this notion that because of the cloud, because of smartphones, anybody can work anywhere now. And being remote, that for many people is a form of utopia. You know, not having to go to the office, not having to commute, not having to get dressed up. All those things that lots of people are now experiencing for the first time, a lot of people are thinking, wow, this is fantastic. This is the way I want to work in the future. Before the pandemic, just over 3% of us were working remotely. But now, three out of four of us say that we'd like to continue working remotely at least half of the time once the pandemic is over. And uh, we think this is a big deal because for a lot of people, working at home was really just synonymous with shirking at home. I think what's happening now is this model, this kind of remote-opia model is being legitimized and it's going to become much more normalized. There's not going to be a stigma attached to it. But of course, working remotely means rethinking how your life works. We talk about the transition from fried egg life to scrambled egg life. And Ooh, what's that? Yeah. What I mean by that is that work and life used to be separated, like, like a fried egg, the yolk and the white. But now we live scrambled egg life. Everything's mashed up. You wake up in the morning and you're doing email in bed at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And then at 11 o'clock, you go for a run or you walk the dog. Ben says that to thrive in Remotopia, managers need to make a big cultural shift. You need to be clear about what's the measure of success or failure. You measure on output rather than input. The input measurement that's been traditionally measured is time served, you know, presentism as it's called sometimes. So if somebody's producing the work, high quality work, doing what you need them to do, then I don't care whether they do it on Sunday morning at four o'clock a.m. I mean, it's irrelevant. So employees, working remotely means you need to get really good at managing your day. Ben is a fan of time boxing. I found this in my own work very, very beneficial the notion of giving yourself a specific period of time to do something. And then at the end of that period of time, the work is what it is. That's going to be tough for you perfectionists. But working within specific windows of time is key to keeping burnout at bay. I think if you give yourself a specific window, you become more efficient. And then at the end of that window, you know, go for a run, walk the dog, go for a swim, do whatever it is you want in that scrambled egg life. You have to know yourself quite well, really, don't you, to work in Remotopia? Yeah, that's absolutely right. 
Learn more about Remotopia and how work is going to change for you and your team. Check out all the research at Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work. Go to cognizant.com slash future of work. C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T dot com slash future of work. We're back. So Eric Reese is this entrepreneurial strategist in Silicon Valley. He writes this mega book, The Lean Startup, and then big companies are asking for his advice. And he realizes those companies have a big problem. They are so focused on quarterly earnings, making the most money they can every three months, never mind what would actually be good for the company, for their products, their customers, their employees, or society. Things like investing in a community full of workers who need training takes time. Strategizing with city officials over how you can grow your workforce without making the city too expensive for anyone but your own employees to live there, that takes time. Figuring out new technology that doesn't destroy the planet, it takes time. And so how do you give a company more time? Well, you change the incentive. And that brings us to Eric's nutty plan, the long-term stock exchange, the LTSE. So I can remember coming up with the idea. I was sitting in an airplane, flying all over the country, doing workshops and lectures about the Lean Startup when I was writing the book. So this is 2009, 10, quite a while ago. And if you study the research on what makes companies great, uh, the idea of the, having a philosophy of long-term thinking is uh, really well-established in the literature about it. At first, I was thinking about Silicon Valley, but I eventually realized it was had much broader applicability. What could we be doing to create more great companies that have this long-term view? When you first had the thought of creating a new stock exchange, did you try to talk yourself out of it? I mean, were you like— <laughs> So many times. <laughs> oh, my God. I can only imagine. Well, Annie, what's funny is I didn't intend to build this, you understand. This is the best part of being an author. You may be familiar. Oh, yeah. You have big ideas. Big ideas. You have a whole chapter of things that other people should do. Yeah, yeah. So if you actually go back to the Lean Startup, the last chapter is kind of future directions for the ecosystem and a whole bunch of ideas that people should do. This was just one of several. I didn't ever dream that it's something that I would have to do. And for years after the book came out, it was like my cocktail party conversation. You know, I would... <laughs> People say, oh, oh yeah, hot shot. You know, I remember doing a Wall Street Journal interview where they were like, well, what other, you know, Lean Startup's big, what are your other big ideas? And I was like, oh, here's one for you. And they, they literally wrote a column that was like, this guy is crazy. Look at his crazy idea. Ha ha. I think I read that article and was like, oh, oh. Yeah, right? right? Yeah, this would change everything. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. So it was just, it was my conversation. I would just say, hey, I think this is an interesting idea. Someone should really do something about it. And what was wild is to watch people had just very extreme reactions to it. Can, we should just lay it out. What is the idea? Like, just lay it out for me. So the long-term stock exchange is a is in the same regulatory category as NASDAQ or NYSE. We are the first new way for companies to go public, really since the creation of NASDAQ in the 60s. And we believe that in order to be listed on our market, companies should have to be held to a higher standard around things like long, having a philosophy of long-term thinking about being multi-stakeholder, taking care of their employees, their communities, the environment, and uh, having their investors be have better disclosure to really understand what the company's long-term strategy is. So at, at its heart, it's actually a very simple idea. 
Companies that want to go public have to be listed on a stock exchange. Every exchange has listing standards that companies are held to, and ours are higher than the uh, legacy players. Okay, so you just, like, how does one go about, like, uh, clearly you floated the idea for a while, and then when did you decide, like, crap, if I, if somebody's, I'm going to have to do this myself? Yeah, so I spent years in the wilderness just trying to understand, how do you even create a new stock exchange? You know, you talk to people, and like, lay people about this, and you say, I'm going to create a new stock exchange, and it's like you're saying, let's create a new moon. <laughs> It's like, that's just not really how it works. We have one already. We don't really need another moon. Uh, and it's like, it's like not a human thing even to contemplate. And I, I spent a long time just trying to understand how do you, w- were they carved on the stone tablets? Where do they come from? <laughs> yeah. How do we get stock exchanges? And finally, I met a securities lawyer who said, oh, it's not a big deal. You just fill out the form one application. What? And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't follow what you're saying. What? And he's like, you know how government forms are all numbered? Sure, everyone knows that. He's like, well, this is SEC form number 001. The application to establish a national, it's just a form. Now, it's a complicated form. It's 200 pages long. And, you know, it's, it takes several years to fill out. But, like, it's not mystical. Congress, in all its wisdom, laid out a process by which new stock exchanges can be created. It's kind of old, creaky infrastructure. That's a lever we don't pull very often. But we still know how to do it. And that's been my journey, you know, over now several years. Uh, we first raised money for this in, in 2016, I think. So if you think about from like 2012 to 16, it took me all that time just to figure out how you would do it. It took us about three years to get the SEC approval, which we got um, last May. Congrats on that. Yeah, thank you very much. And and yet part of this is just taking like a monumentally big idea like this and just breaking it down one step at a time. I was like, okay, well, what has to be on the form? Who has to fill it out? What kind of expertise do you need? What kind of lawyer do you need? What kind of lobbyist do you need? What kind of engineers do you need? Just help me understand the pieces. And it took thousands and thousands of conversations, of course, to, to figure all that out. But it, I think, I hope that this will serve eventually, you know, if we're successful as inspiration to a new generation of civic entrepreneurs who will say, you know what? We don't have to take the institutions of our society as a given. We could try to build new and better ones. Huh. Can, can you help me figure out what that might look like Yeah, the whole idea is for a company to be able to say, look, we're going to make binding commitments to do the right thing, whether or not the stock price is up or down. So we're going to take our stakeholders into account. We're going to measure the impact that we have on them. And we're going to be sure that we're taking care of not just our shareholders, but also our customers, our employees, our communities. And for me, the acid test of this is what happens if, God forbid, it is discovered someday that your product is actively harmful to your customers. It's addictive or it makes them depressed or it's unhealthy or it harms their communities or the societies that they live in. Well, the people who are in charge of the company at that time, and when I do this exercise with founders, I always ask them to imagine like after they've passed away, the next CEO, why will they do the right thing and come clean? Think about like when Johnson & Johnson had that famous Tylenol recall. Now it's taught as like a case study in business schools where even at the possibility that there might be poisonous products out there, they recalled everything voluntarily to build that public trust. Will they do that or will they try to bury it and punt the problem down into the future? That's the acid test. So here we want to have kind of layers of protection around the company that kind of remove the temptation to do those things so that then when a company goes to the public and says, you should trust me, I'm here to stay. I will be your partner. I will take care of you. You know, when they go to their employees and say, we'll be a good employer. When they go to communities and to politicians and to all the partners that they have to deal with and say, we would like to be your long-term partner. You can trust that we are looking out 
for win-win opportunities for you and for us, that they that any of those people would have any even iota of reason to believe them. I remember talking to someone I knew who um, we were talking about someone who was on a board, and they had voted for this company to be sold to um, a, a right-wing company. And I was like, I just can't believe they would vote like that to, to for this company to be sold. And they were like, well, I get it because her obligation is to the board and the shareholders. It doesn't matter what would be good for society yes. or what she thinks is the right thing to do. That's irrelevant. Yeah, and it's absolutely mind-boggling that there are people who that who really believe that that is the right way to run business. So a big part of LTSE is just to say, why don't we partner with the long-term shareholders and figure out with them what's really in the company's long-term benefit? And that's where I think you can reclaim the kind of unity of purpose between corporations and a healthy society. Since for most companies, it's actually counterproductive to harm your employees, to harm the communities in which you operate. That, that can help you in the short term, but we've seen so many examples over the years where that's really counterproductive in the long run. So if somebody listening is like, okay, I, I want in on this. Who, what companies can I invest in if I believe in, you know, this idea of companies that are thinking about the long-term effects of the products they make and, and the well-being of their employees and all those things? We're working on it. We're not quite there yet. Uh, you know, I, I, we like to joke that we have acquired, it's like we acquired the world's most expensive taxi medallion. Uh-huh. We've gotten the license to operate this new exchange. We are not yet driving the car around. So we're still in the process of working with the regulators to get the servers and the, the infrastructure booted up. And what we will do then is we'll act almost like a certification agency, like the companies that are willing to list or dual list uh, under our standards, that they'll be the ones that the, that the public can trust have this long-term philosophy. So I'm not allowed to talk about the specifics of who those companies might be, but uh, suffice to say, we're very optimistic about this new, this next generation of companies and the investors that, that um, work with them, I think have a really different value system, a really different ethos around what actually creates value for the long-term. And this is what gives me hope because I, I now know several companies, I think, that are gearing up to meet this standard. And the standard is, if I come to you, the public, and say, I'm a good citizen, I'm gonna be a good company, not like the ones that have come before. I'm gonna take care of people. I'm gonna do right, not just for the sake of like virtue signaling and social justice. I'm gonna do right because that's ultimately what's in the interests of my long-term shareholders and the, the longest-term stakeholders in any company they're your employees and the founders themselves and the communities that you're going to be operating in potentially for decades. I think if you took, like if, if you could somehow arrange it, just to do this as a thought experiment, imagine that every corporate executive in America by magic had their entire net worth tied up in the value of their company 10 years from today. So they made, they were lived in poverty for the next 10 years, but then they would have reaped this massive reward. They could access their complete net worth, but only if the company was healthy and solvent at that time. Does anyone really believe that under those incentives, uh, the same these same people would be obfuscating the climate crisis or like be not investing in communities or like all these problems that we're dealing with? They'd be like, well, it's not my problem. It's somebody else's problem. They would feel those problems so much more acutely because they'd be like, oh my God, if this problem is still happening 10 years from now, my company's not gonna be worth what I want it to be worth. And isn't that really what we, what their shareholders would want them to be doing? We want to move in that direction. And I think if we do, we will start to see corporate actors, and because of their influence on political actors, also political actors start to take those long-term problems much more seriously. 
But it sounds like you're explaining to me why some people, particularly in Silicon Valley, are kind of hostile to the long-term stock exchange. Because what you're saying to them is like, you are going to have to give something up in the short term. Mm-hmm. It's a trade. That's We've always conceived of this as a, as a bargain, a grand bargain between investors and managers. Everyone give up a little bit in exchange for we have more valuable companies. So yeah, Oof. our standards are hard, right? Everyone, like you won't make as much money in the short term potentially. You, we don't allow companies to have like really short term oriented compensation systems for managers. We require companies to do more, not less disclosure. And we ask that, um, that, corporate power and economics be shifted away from the short-term investors and toward the long-term investors. Like those are real, like it, for something to be meaningful as a certification, as a signifier, it has to be real. It has to actually be painful. The fact that it's somewhat difficult is the thing that makes it valuable. So at the end of the day, will anyone really be willing to sacrifice the short-term for the long-term? I don't know. It's an experiment. We're going to find out. But let us have an end to all this rhetoric about changing the world if we're really just in it for the quick return. I like a, like a, can we dispense with that, please? So we're actually, we get confused really easily about what actually creates value. And you gotta go back to the fundamentals. I think, I think Peter Drucker said, uh, the purpose of a corporation is to create a customer, like serving humans in a, in a positive sum way. That's why corporations exist. That's why capitalism is a moral system. If we ever break that connection, right, rent-seeking behavior, crony capitalism, all this stuff where people get paid for without creating value, not only is that corrupt and kind of, I don't know how those people live with themselves, but it kind of breaks the fundamental promise of capitalism and therefore brings the morality of the whole system into question. I guess my last question to you is, you know, Eric, you were really young when you Lean Startup became a big bestseller. And, you know, a lot of people looking to you um, to lead them into the future at a really young age. And like, here you are, I think you're in your 40s, right? Yeah. I'm really fascinated by how people um, gauge time or think of time in their own lives. I wonder, like, how has the working on the long-term stock exchange affected you in terms of how you view your career and your life trajectory? Gosh, that is a great question. I noticed something that in the early days, it was important to look the part of what people wanted. So there were like a certain segment of the population. They liked the idea of the young guru who would come, you know, teach them this avant-garde stuff. So one lesson you get right away is that the world projects onto you the things that it wants to be true. And, and eventually you become like a character in people's lives. It's not even really about you as a person. That's very surreal. But the other thing that really got to me was, look, this has been an incredible ride, so gratifying, you know, so rewarding in so many ways. So, you know, it created a, just an immense amount of freedom for me to, to do whatever I want to do and to spend my time on the things that I think are valuable. And then on top of that, I had kids. I got young kids at home now. When they're old enough to understand what I do for a living, what do I want to tell them I was working on? And do I really want to be like, you know what I did? I helped like shareholders incrementally get more value under the Delaware business judgment rule by blah, blah, blah. Like who wants to say that to their children? You know, like you gotta have a better story than that. And I don't know, my, I don't know about other kids, my kids see right through me. So if I try to BS them with some kind of like, you know, I dress it up as, oh, I'm changing the world for the better. Like they're gonna know. So like the, and they're gonna inherit these problems from us. 
And what are we gonna say that we did about those problems when we still had the chance, when, when prevention is so much cheaper than mitigation after the fact? Who, which of us is gonna be able to stand up and say, no, I, I gave it my all. I actually tried to do something to address the root causes of these problems. And I don't know about other people, but I just, I wanna be able to look my kids in the eye and say, I was on the right side of this one. What do you wanna be able to say that you did, hopefully, if the long-term stock exchange experiment succeeds? What's oh, so funny, because people act like it's such an audacious thing and it's so big, but to me, this is just one brick in a new foundation for our civic society. We do not have the institutions that we need to survive the 21st century. Business, nonprofits, and educational institutions, and religions, and governments, and politicians, and everybody rowing together to kind of reinvigorate what it means to you know, to live in a democracy in the 21st century. I don't think the status quo is tenable. So it's up or out, as they say, and I hope, I hope this will help inspire people to take those steps. You never can look into someone's soul and know for sure if they're being sincere in what they say, you know, no matter how well you know someone. So I can, I know a number of founders who are saying the right things and they're starting to say it publicly too. You know, they're going to be good for society. They're going to be climate neutral or they're going to be multi-stakeholder in their view. But to me, this is all about action. Speak louder than words. Eric Grease, I am so excited to introduce your big idea to our ZigZag community because it's really what exactly what they're thinking about. And I think people are understanding there are problems, but now it's time we need to talk about the solutions. So I'm really grateful to you for your time. Oh, thank you. It's really my pleasure. And, and thanks for the interview. So the LTSC was supposed to launch earlier this year. Things got put off because of the pandemic. But just before this episode came out, I checked back in with Eric to hear what he's thinking and if he's got any work advice in light of all the recent news events. In some ways, the crisis that we're all living through really validates the thesis that we have been on, working on for such a long time with LTSE. So many of the problems we're dealing with now are the result of an epidemic of short-term thinking over the past decades where we just didn't make the investments that were needed. And you see that in a lack of funding for basic science and research. Think how much better off we would be if uh, after SARS-CoV-1, we had made the long-term investments in therapeutics and virology that would allow us to have a vaccine already potentially for this class of coronavirus. Obviously, uh, on the topic of racial injustice, this is a centuries-old problem in this country. And the fact that we're only now, as the majority population, waking up to our obligations and the need for change, um, think how much better off we would be if we had made those commitments to equity all along. And so I think there's a sea change underway. Corporations that have a long-term multi-stakeholder philosophy are reaping the rewards of the brand benefits of that right now. You've seen who has a real people-first philosophy and who doesn't. And the ones that don't have come across as ham-handed. They've had um, crisis after crisis in terms of their public perception. They've had problems with their customers and their suppliers and their investors and their vendors and their broader community. And the ones who had already made the commitment to these kinds of principles ahead of time are in a position actually to see this crisis as an opportunity to grow and thrive. For those that want to pursue entrepreneurship as a calling, it's hard to find a better time. 
the big needs of our society are more evident than ever and people are paying attention more than ever. So if you can find a solution that is really aligned with this crisis, you can get adoption, traction, attention much more easily than before. For those that are really interested in making systemic change, this is a magical moment, I think, to to do that. I love that. This period right now feels hard, heartbreaking, frustrating. But when it comes to changing how business gets done, it could be magical. That's cool. If you're curious about the long-term stock exchange, go to LTSE.com. For more of Eric's soothing voice and great human business advice, check out his latest podcast. It's called Out of the Crisis. And just to let you know how things are going over here at Stable Genius Productions, I am now running the company on my own in addition to keeping this podcast alive and doing my day job as host of the TED Radio Hour. Those folks at NPR who make the show are amazing. And Jen is doing great. She adopted a new dog. They have totally bonded. You can check out her Instagram at jpoyant, P-O-Y-A-N-T. And Jen is helping run the new podcast team over at 10% Happier. You may know the book, the meditation app. Anyway, it's a great fit for her. And she says hello to all of you, dear listeners. Okay, like I said, six weeks, six dynamos this summer, next week. I identify as a black gay woman. And I couldn't find anyone who looked like me who was making investments in people who look like me. Investor Arlen Hamilton, another great voice to listen to, and someone who is hell-bent on changing the system. She is a force. Don't miss this episode. Subscribe to ZigZag so you get it automatically wherever you listen to podcasts. A couple quick notes before we go, important ones. Um... I, of course, want to hear what you are wrestling with, what you are trying to change in your own life or in your work or business. Uh, You know, I'm the queen of listener voice memos and podcasting, OG. Please record a note to me on your phone and email it to zigzag at stableg.com. That is zigzag at stableg.com. I will start including listener voices in episodes to come. They really inform the show. They really help me understand how I can be helpful to you. So please do email it to zigzag at stableg.com. Oh, and please also go to zigzagpot.com because that way you can see the amazing artwork that has been commissioned to go along with each episode this season. And you can see the new logo for the podcast. Well, I guess you can just look down at your phone right now. But also, um, the artist's name is Rimey. She's awesome. Jen found her. Um, Or if you're like, Manoush, this is all too much work, totally respect that. I can send you directly the episode and the cool artwork, plus other cool ideas and links that I find for you in my newsletter. It is free, and it is really easy to sign up at zigzagpod.com. Many, many, many thanks to the team who made this episode possible, which includes David Herman, Maria Wartel, Dan DeZula, Armin Zamarodi, Josh Robin, and Matt Boynton. Special thanks to Jen Poyant, too, always. 
And my partners at TED, including Anna Phelan, Colin Helms, Michelle Quint, Alex Knott, Laura Seeger, and Lisa Wax. ZigZag is a member of the TED family of podcasts and comes from Stable Genius Productions. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Does that work for you? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay.